Welcome to our experience at ASCP podcast. I'm Chad, Chief Executive for ASCP, joined by my colleague, Tom Hansel of Hansel Health, joining me as the co-host. And today we're going to talk about where we are in this long-term care industry currently. So we've invited our own people to the show. Jim Lewis is our Senior Director of Government Affairs, and Arnie Klayman is our Vice President of Pharmacy Practice and Government Affairs. And so far during the podcast episodes, we've talked about history and using history as a way to define where we're going as an industry. And now we're going to spend some time talking about where we are and where we're going. So standing on the shoulders of of the giants that we've talked to, today's long-term care pharmacies and pharmacists fight for clinical services and access to patients as they've become experts at managing throughout the the five-decade history of ASCP. Providing reimbursable services through vaccinations, relationships with physicians and aiming medically complex older adults outside nursing homes and providing services to them, whether they live in assisted living or in home care settings, it dominates our policy and legislative agenda. So we're going to talk about that today. And we've got, as Arnie would always say, a lot on our plate. <laughs> a lot. So I'll let, I'll let Arnie and Jim just say hi and introduce themselves, give a little bit of your backgrounds and, and we'll okay. go. Okay. Uh, thanks, Chad. Uh, Arnie Clayman. So I've been uh, a pharmacist for a couple centuries, started in hospital pharmacy, Home Infusion, been in long-term care for like the last 35 years and been a member of ASCP since then. Been a staff member for the last 12 years. Been real involved in um, regulatory and legislative affairs, both on the state level in Maryland and then, of course, with national and then gradually became a staff member. And that's I do it full time. So uh, it was kind of my inevitable career path. Awesome. Jim? Yeah. And Jim Lewis here. I'm with the Government Affairs and Policy Team. Been on the team here at ASCP just over two years. Before that, I was on Capitol Hill for the last six and a half and really spent a lot of time working on health from the health equity lens. I worked for both the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust and the Asian Pacific American Health Brain Trust. So really both sides of that, as well as staffing the HIV AIDS caucus. So a lot of work on maternal mortality as well with Robin's team. But yeah, so joined the team here and uh, it's definitely been a chance to understand this sector and really, when you think about healthcare, particularly on the policy side, long-term care is never on the list. It's not something people are thinking about. So sort of being here at ASCP really helps understand how to fill those gaps. But I think that puts us in a good position, too, without sort of the standard healthcare people really understanding this space. When we start talking to people, either as ASCP or as our individual pharmacists, you know, we're filling a knowledge gap for them that is, you know, broader healthcare, you've got a bunch of organizations, a bunch of providers really interested, but in our space, it's it's much smaller and there's much less sort of expertise across the board. So it's definitely been a, a learning experience, but I think a good opportunity for us to then translate what we do to the education of policymakers. And I'm sure we'll get into it, but seeing with COVID and just the poor planning for COVID's impact on long-term care, you know, and then now seeing new plans come out that are supposed to be informed by COVID, but still seeing this giant chunk of the super vulnerable population not being covered. And I think one thing that's interesting from Jim's Jim's perspective is you're not a pharmacist. Not a pharmacist. We spent two years trying to figure out what it is we do. <laughs> and <laughs> you've become extraordinarily <laughs> proficient at it. But I think it's important because like that's hard. That's hard. It's easy for pharmacists to figure out why a policy issue might be impactful to their practice. It's hard when you don't 
when you don't know that at first. But I also think it's also hard for particularly our our members to understand the process of politics and agencies, because things that seem, you know, these are entrepreneurs out there. They solve problems. They mm-hmm. fix procedures. They do things. And we want to do that in legislative affairs and we want to do that with agencies, but it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to uh, some students yesterday and explaining to them that when you go through this process, it takes a long time for anything to happen. Mm. And I think, you know, our members don't really understand that. It's like, well, here's a problem and we see a solution. Why can't we just fix it? Well, you know, it takes a long time for that to happen. It could be regulatory. It could be legislative. It could be a combination of both. And explaining to people why long-term care is an important segment of healthcare, and letting them understand that, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, it'll be beneficial or it will be harmful to us. Mm-hmm. Trying to get them to understand that it's a long process. It doesn't happen overnight. Well, and then on the government side too, you also have, if it's not done this way, then the government can be sued and you may get the desired policy change that you want. But let's say if it's a DEA or an FDA regulation, if they don't go through the proper comment period and all of that, which all of that takes time, then even the policy change you get is now a risk in the courts. So, you know, unfortunately, it's government work. So it sometimes takes a lot longer to get to where we want to go. And then on the backside, too, then once you know you get a commitment from an agency or from Congress to change it, then that whole process has to play out. And I mean, sometimes this process I mean, telemedicine is something we're all really looking at right now. 2008 was the Ryan Hodge Act was passed. It's now 2023 and DEA just populated the regulations and they only did it because the public health emergency is looking to end. So they have to get something on the books in the near future. So, you know, even with Congress saying do X, 15 years is the time frame for these agencies sometimes to move on these policies. Well, as, as a pharmacist that remembers being in school in the late nineties, talking about provider status. I get it. (laughs) It takes a while. I also remember being on the Hill. I was working for a pharmacy and, and helping with, you know, grassroots government issues and coming up here for the Medicare part D provision and discussion. And there are stories that stick in my head. One is setting up a program where the beneficiary, which was a person over the age of 65 had to go online type in their medications in order to choose the best plan mm-hmm. for them. And the hearing staffers and the people on the government side feel like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> and feeling sure. like, have you ever met one of these 65 year olds? That, that, that's not, you know, that was what, 15, 15 years, years ago. ago. Yeah, so it's that. not like, yeah. you know, we pulled out our smartphone and looked it up. It was right. a little bit more complex than that, but particularly for older adults. So yeah. those are the things that you deal with bridging what professionals do in a society like ours and trying to make it influence something on the Hill or with an agency. Well, and it's also helpful to remind ourselves the average age of a congressional staffer is 31. So if you assume their parents are, let's say, 25 years older, their parents aren't even into the long care or the Medicare space. You know, there are a few and things are different. But, you know, that's sort of the universe of people that we're talking to that are sort of informing the folks making these policies. So, you know, we'll have meetings on the Hill and someone it's my grandmother is in a nursing home or my boyfriend's grandmother. And that's really the only context for a lot of these staffers for what's going on. And I think where we can sort of play the role, too, is 
you know, helping these staffers know that like when they have a question about nursing homes, they can call CM, you know, they can call CMS, they can call Congressional Research Services. But here's a pharmacist in your district or your member's district actually practicing. Give them a phone call. And I, I don't think that any of our members are not going to take that phone call. I think the trick is getting folks to understand one, that you exist, two, that you're not the standard pharmacy, that you go and get your scripts filled in, and then three, not only that you're interested in helping, but you're willing and excited to help. So do you believe that's where the importance of the long-term care pharmacy definition comes from as far as legislation that I know that we've been talking about, again, for years? Yeah, I think it's important. I think, you know, something in statute, though, is it necessary? Like there's, you know, pull out the code book. It's this huge. I think what's more important is the staffers and then the pharmacists building that relationship with the members or with the staffers, getting them out to your pharmacy to come and see what you're doing. When you do your flu clinic, like no member of Congress doesn't want that photo op. And we also know that the older you get, the more likely you are to vote. So, you know, if that if that's the component, are we able to get our state reps, our state senators, our members of Congress out to see Here's how we fill the scripts. Here's how they go to the facility. And then here's what happens to them on the back end. And, you know, HIPAA is always a challenge and you always have those sort of things to think through for something like this. But, you know, I can tell you the things that my bosses remembered were those trips out mm-hmm. to, to do things sure. with people. And then on the back end, too, you know, having staffed sort of the HIV AIDS caucus, getting our bosses to do things like go to pop-up testing sites and actually do the test themselves. You know, I think we saw that a lot with COVID with members posting themselves and their kids Mm -hmm. getting the shots. You know, I think it's building that relationship and us on our end, creating opportunities for these policymakers to come and actually see what we do and understand it. And knowing that a component of it too is the photo op. Like, you know, think through (laughs) what might be the good photo ops. You know, it's not like a traditional pharmacy where you've got the sign in front of the building. You know, most of ours are not signed for a reason, but what can we do that? you know, creates that moment in time that makes awareness to the community as well. Exactly. Absolutely. I think um, I've had a lot of experience with doing uh, visits to pharmacies Mm -hmm. that I worked in and um, getting the member of Congress to, to actually be there and see what we do and understand it and understand that this is in their district and these are their constituents that are involved. Very, very powerful. I mean, one of the visits I did with my local congressman was, um, to sign onto a bill for Medicare funding for home infusion, home care. And after his visit, he went back and signed onto it because it's like, oh, I didn't even realize there was that kind of a pharmacy that did those kind of products. It was like mind boggling because their frame of reference is the same as anyone else in the the public is, you know, the the drugstore, Mm -hmm. you know, going going to the pharmacy. Well, I think, you know, it's a cliche. It's all about relationships. If you have trusted relationships, if you're an entity like ASCP and suddenly you've been responding during COVID and your members have been responding and doing things, all of a sudden they start coming to you and saying, Mm -hmm. hey, this is coming down the line. How is this going to work? How can we help make sure it works as opposed to being on the outside and, and going to them and saying, hey, before you do this wrong, listen to us. This is who we are. But when you build those relationships, you alleviate a lot of that. And and one example, and I'll put Arnie on the spot. He loves this (laughs) is I remember being in a dugout at my son's game and talking about what are we going to 
ask C- I was going to say demand, ask CMS to pay us for the COVID vaccine. And at the time it was a two step vaccine. Right. And we went through this, I don't I mean somewhat sophisticated, like how do we price this out? And we came up with a number, I think it was $48 is what we said we, we thought we needed. And I think it was in the dugout when we got the call that they had basically taken what we had given them and said, yeah, this is what we're going to do as if, like, <laughs> as if like they did it. But like, right. if we weren't trusted, yeah, yeah. they were taking what they we were said, it's like $15. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't exactly what we wanted, but right. it was, it was for one shot instead of for the, se- oh, it was for the series right. instead of for one shot, but it was a whole lot better than what they had originally planned to pay. Right. And it eventually got to one per shot, right. eventually right. got there, but it's just, but, it, it's because there was a relationship and they, yeah. they were like, okay. These are credible people. We've been working with yeah. them. Let's take what they are saying and, and try to apply. Yeah, they, they basically said, what do you think we should be paying? Right. Yeah. They ask us that. But to that point, it's the legacy of ASCP and in the decades, what you guys have done on Capitol Hill that it really allowed them to have that trust. You know, you didn't try to do something, you know, pull the wool over their eyes 10 years ago. And so they know that what you gave them was well thought out and, yeah. and considered. Yeah. You know, that continues to, to be the case. Well, yeah. I, but I think for me, and, you know, this is where having somebody like Veronica and Jim come over from the Hill into our shop mm-hmm. makes a huge difference because we have had a reputation for 50 years, you know, but a lot of the people that work in government are not there for 50 mm-hmm. years. There may be well, some of them. It may be passed <laughs> verbally <laughs> some from some one to another that, hey, ASCP is who you go to. But you have mm-hmm. to stay in their face and you have to stay in front yeah. and they have to keep hearing from you so that they you're at the top of the Rolodex yeah. using an old school term. Well, I mean, your standard tenure in one of the leaderships of these agencies, if you make 18 to 24 months, like. That's it. But I mean, for a lot of these folks in their career, it's charity work to work for the government. They can make a bunch more money doing something else. You know, I think this administration, we've seen people stick around a lot longer than you normally do. But, you know, even in the Obama administration, how many CMS administrators were there? How many HHS secretaries were there? And when those people leave, they take their whole team with them. There's a whole political team like you know, there's the bureaucratic level, which are the people that are there for the 20, the 30, 40 years and building relationship with those people really matters. But sometimes they're not the decision makers and, you know, they can influence those decision makers. But you sort of like you said, you have to consistently be in people's faces because a lot of times they're new people. And I mean, you know, even with the, the COVID response, you know, how many different White House contacts have we had for vaccines? I can think of three that have been like our points of contact. And I mean, look, these are high burnout jobs. Those folks are working 24 seven, trying to get shots in arms. As much work as we did, they had it coming at them from all the other sides. So of course it's gonna be a high burnout position. But then the next guy comes in, we need to make sure we're in front of them day one, day two. Hey, we're here, we're in a position to help you because these folks don't have that expertise. You know, it's at that point when there was transition, what really impressed me was that when we had our first call with them, they were like, oh, yeah, we know about you guys. We know what you've done. Word of mouth passed on. That was very impressive to me mm-hmm. because that meant we really made an impression on them that they talked about us enough that they, they could you know, spew back to us information about what our contributions were. 
And that's pretty amazing. I'm curious, though. Does that seem like a hamster wheel sometimes? You're like, I've been doing this over and over. It's it's always a hamster wheel. (laughs) 100%. I was trying to be nice about it. Well, and then it makes it even harder, too, with something like COVID, where this, then you start talking state policy or, you know, when things are being distributed by jurisdiction, now you got 64 health jurisdictions. So not only are we trying to talk to the hamster wheel that's happening at the federal level, now we're doing that in New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Rhode Island, Vermont, you know, every that cycle that's happening. And then there's also the political component. Governors change over time. You know, it it is even it's an even bigger hamster wheel when you move out from the federal government to sort of the state operations, which is where the fights over scope of practice are really happening Mm -hmm. right now. And five states have taken in the last month, have taken steps to expand provider status for pharmacists, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, without the federal effort, Medicare is now left out. So, you know, Medicaid is now much better employer sponsored programs. The government sponsored programs have these reimbursement for pharmacist services. But when you're talking Medicare, not so much. Yeah. And so that becomes the challenge, too, is you've got all these different hamster wheels running at the same time. And now you've got to fit the 64 hamster wheels up into the larger hamster wheel that is the federal. But I think to Chad's point about relationships, it's so, so important. ASCP has had a longstanding relationship with the DEA. And the DEA really affects all of our lives. Whether you're a consultant pharmacist or in operations, the DEA rules and regulations affect everybody. And back in like 89, we started a, a DEA task force at ASCP. And we got a lot of things changed. It's taken a long time. We have a lot of things that um, were put in the hopper that have finally gotten to regulation. We still have a long way to go. We have a lot of things we talked about. But having that relationship with multiple people at the top is really, really important because then they will pass that information on to somebody else. And even though a lot of times it is the hamster wheel because it's not getting done, but at least we have credibility. You know, they mm-hmm. when we ask them a question, they'll respond to us. Might not be the answer we want, but at least we'll get a response back. If we want to have a meeting, we can have a meeting. So having that ongoing relationship and constantly being in their face, I think, is extremely important. Oh, it's it's huge. And we just, you know, we're coming off our fly-in, our legislative fly-in. And, you know, some people look at those opportunities and think, oh, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to come up and do that. But I know, and I've heard it from everybody up here, and I've, I've heard it throughout my career, how critical it is. That is you as a member and a constituent participate in those kinds of activities. And, you know, I'll I'll look at Jim because he's the one that can say this better than (laughs) anybody else. But your ability to even get a meeting Mm -hmm. with your member, uh, sometimes that's the only way we get a meeting with Mm -hmm. a member is if you bring a constituent from the area that they represent and they they listen to you. Mm -hmm. So with the change of. COVID and then geriatric baby boomer generation, all the things we talk about all the time. With the more national impact that seniors are growing and Medicare might run out of money, do you find now Congress and legislators starting to come to you more or do you still have to always go to them? Are they starting to ask more questions because they know that you're a leader in, in geriatrics? It depends on the issue and what's moving. I mean, yeah. you know, the big fights in healthcare are what gets the newspaper attention. I would say where we're seeing some folks sort of outreaching is on the staffing issue. We're hearing a lot on that. That's one thing that people are sort of reaching out to us in part too, because 
you're largely talking about nursing staffing and we're pharmacists. So it's a slight, like they feel like we're maybe less interested party, not to say disinterested, but have that perspective. Having worked on the Hill, you know, you've got three legislative staffers on the House side. You've got a ledge director and three legislative staffers to a member of Congress. That person who's handling health care or seniors issues and Social Security is also handling tax, foreign policy, defense, first responder, <laughs> labor. You know, they've got a bunch of other stuff. So for us, it, and you, there's, those are higher turnover positions, too. So for us, it's really keeping in front of them. It does help when you've got two pharmacists in Congress and one of them being a former ASCP member, you have the GOP doctors caucus, which are the sort of MDs and the DOs. There's a podiatrist in there too. You know, you don't have something like that on the Democratic mm -hmm. side because there are only three MDs and no pharmacists. You know, with them, you really have to stay in front of them with the congressional folks. And that is, again, as Chad was saying, why the sort of the fly-ins are so important because it allows us to build that relationship and our members to build that relationship with their members of Congress and with that staff, you know, because we're, you know, we're able to do that with the agencies. And yes, we're doing that with the, the people on the Hill. But like I said, the average age is 31. So, you know, where are people going next becomes a little bit of a challenge. And also, you know, the nursing home touches it at max 2% of the population on an annual basis. So, it, you know, if I'm looking at my constituents, you know, COVID with, you know, 25% deaths occurred from COVID in nursing homes. So now I'm paying attention to nursing homes. I'm going back to my district and I need to get, I'm hearing about the environment and that's what I'm hearing about from my district. I'm hearing about gun violence in my district. I'm hearing about a lack of jobs in my district. You know, who's making the most noise that's getting the attention? And, you know, it, it's really the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not being a squeaky enough wheel, then your patients, the most vulnerable in our communities, are going to be forgotten. And I think, you know, for the VA, for example, is a, probably a great example of no matter what your position is on the VA, everyone can see that there are a lot of problems. But because it hasn't been a priority, because you haven't had the squeaky wheels until recently, the situation kept getting worse and worse and worse. And now we have a system that is so fundamentally broken that to re sort of build it is now you're getting everyone's attention on what do we do now to rebuild it. But, you know, we also have to remember that these folks, if you're on the House, you're on the ballot every two years. If you're in the Senate, you're on the ballot every six years. These folks are, they have an interest in making sure they get reelected. When I'm thinking about nursing home, how many nursing home residents are actually voting right. in my district? Yeah, but sense. you know, I will, I will say that um, it depends on the issue. Depend yeah. Because we have gotten calls from people that say, well, this is talking about long-term care. Do you guys understand this? Or is this something that you're involved in? We have gotten those kinds of calls. Yeah. And I think that also if it's an issue, like we're working on the um, antipsychotics, on a project pause, you know, if they hear something related to that, they will reach out to us because they know that we're really involved in that. So I think it really depends on the issue. It's a good, Not yeah. as a matter of course, usually, but it does happen. It does happen with them reaching out. But it, again, you have to make sure you're in front of them and make sure that that LD 
legislative director on that team knows yeah. about us. Sure. Because that guy probably wasn't in that job two years ago. Right. So since you said the average age is around 31, yeah. I think maybe a, an approach is you should make TikTok videos and just send uh, them. Yes. And <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll be that. That No so TikTok legal. on government phones. <laughs> That's right. So, oh, here you go. Can't do it. <laughs> We've touched on a few of the issues. I want to at least lay out what at least I perceive are our five and we have five big issues okay. for ASCP members. We have ECAPS, which is the vaccination legislation, which has provider status embedded in it, which obviously is a priority for the profession. And it certainly impacts our pharmacists who've now stepped into vaccination in nursing homes. We have long-term care pharmacy at home. We know that the Older, vulnerable patients are not going to exclusively live in nursing homes or even assisted livings. So we got to take care of them elsewhere. And who better to do that than the people that are experts at taking care of older adults with medication issues? So how do we move over to the home care environment and provide services there? We have incident two billing, which is a came out of the COVID emergency where general supervision for pharmacists working with physicians could become billable activities. So it's a big deal. We have Project Pause, which is our ongoing work with CMS on managing antipsychotics, psychotropics in general, but antipsychotics in particular, which is still a very hot issue. And we have the long-term care pharmacy definition bill, which in some ways could have certainly made it easier before the pandemic to figure out where they all were and how they were all servicing so that you could deploy strategy quicker. I think Ultimately, we stepped up in a, in a good way. But those all those issues exist at this confluence of a pandemic that made us more important and we stepped into it. And also healthcare and this older population, which a lot of us got involved in this space because of older adults and how many medications they take and what you need to be to help solve some of those problems. So that's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. Busy. And I'll let you guys this comment on, on that. And that's, you know, that's all happening right now. All five of those things yeah. spinning around that hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And we, but we can't take out of it the cost component of it. And I think what we saw from Congress the last cycle and what we've seen from the administration with the Inflation Reduction Act is there's a real focus on cost, too. And none of this can be devoid of what it costs the system, whether it's Medicare going bankrupt because there's more seniors within the system or that that's also a focus of it is cost. What is the cost of keeping someone at home and in the community? How do we reduce that cost to a level that the system can bear it while still providing quality care? And, you know, the cost is a key component of it. And then the other thing, too, is with the incident to billing and I think at home is how does this fit into this new vision of team-based care, patient-centric, value-based, team-based care? How does all of these pieces fit together so that we are, you know, what is it that makes the most sense? And there, you know, there's all the pieces of it, you know, with provider status, the ECAS bill, pharmacists will be billing at 85% the rate of the physician. So that is a cost savings. You know, we can show, we can, we've proved we can do it during COVID. Now we're showing a cost savings to the system. So we're sort of touching on those two key components of it. You know, similar things with that home care. We can reduce the cost by either reducing the number of drugs a patient is on through de-prescribing and making sure they have the right medicines for them. But also, you know, if we're managing someone's meds better, 
does that allow the family to take care of them longer without the assistance of, you know, let's say a home health agency, or you only need the home health agency a couple of times a week? You know, how are we fitting into this? Well, ultimately, yeah. not letting the person go to a nursing home, which is mm-hmm. ultimately the highest cost level for that person. Well, if you're taking care of them at home, right? Yeah, you're taking care of them at home, and you're avoiding ERs and hospitalizations, and and at least prolonging the time before they require skilled nursing. You know, you're saving money. Yeah, yeah. and what I would add to the cost conversation is also health information technology, because in order for all this stuff to happen, we need interoperable systems, which we've been working on for a long time. And there's a whole area of stuff that ASCP has been working on trying to increase interoperability, because with transitions of care, if you don't have that information, mm-hmm. you, you can't really do your job. Or and with team-based care. You know, or team-based care. Yeah. Well, they're both, that's exactly. what I say, it's yeah. all integrated. Well, and some of the conversations we've had on you know, the historical long-term care pharmacist you know, we heard a story about a guy named Bill Cash, who I had never heard of. Did you? No. Never heard of him. And <laughs> one of our historians <laughs> who was on a, a previous podcast, Pat Keefe, talked about this person as being one of the pioneers of the industry. And what they did was they basically invented med carts and went to nursing facilities and sold the nursing facility on how this could help them be more efficient, help their nurses sold them and then went to the pharmacies and said, hey, I've got this facility that wants this. Will you support it? And then you can be the pharmacy that services the nursing home. So it's sort of this way the industry kind of evolved. And I don't think the issues that we talk about are that different. They're not maybe as foundational as Mm -hmm. med carts or packaging, but take vaccination as an example. We weren't doing it before. Pandemic hits. We're asked to do it. We do it. Now we are doing it. And to your point, it doesn't cost the government any more to have a pharmacist be involved in giving the vaccine than it did before to have a nurse do it or a physician do it in the office. But now it's more flexible and maybe working as a team or even, you know, pharmacists taking more of the responsibility becomes more effective. And these are the things that this is what we're doing. This is the whole point of of our engagement with government and with agency is to create these opportunities and sort of coax people into it. Like you should do this. Vaccination's a good one. And look at staffing. Yeah. Staffing's a mess right now. We should be talking about pharmacy. What can you do to help the facility with their staffing problem? Could you We've talked about doing AIMS tests. Like, could you be the assessor for AIMS and assess people on antipsychotics? And can we support that by finding a payment pathway? Again, they're paying for it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're doing it at 85% of the physician or we're doing it the same price that a nurse gets paid to do it. But creating those opportunities where we see the pivot points in the industry, you know, we're, we're fortunate that I think for the most part that long-term care pharmacy is a good labor pool. We're not, I, th- I think a lot of pharmacists want to work in this industry as opposed to not wanting to work in the retail environment. So we have that to lean on even down to our client level and say, yeah, our pharmacists are there. They can do more. You have to pay them a little bit more, but you're getting this out of them in an environment where you can't staff certain areas of your facility. Yeah. Those are things that we should be doing. And to add on to that, the nursing shortage is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is going to be a crisis that's going to hit America. And no one's talking about it that I know of much 
But this is a real thing. And I think what a great opportunity for pharmacists and through the vaccinations, we are able to prove that we can do, do provider stuff, if you will. Mm-hmm. But to add on to that and continue growing, because they're going to have to turn to us when this nursing shortage really hits, you know, hits hard mm-hmm. and it's going to hit dramatically, I believe. Yeah. Well, and then even beyond that, when we start to think about the community, we know we have a primary care shortage as well. Mm -hmm. And that's really another opportunity outside of long term care for pharmacists to step up. You know, what's the stat we hear all the time? Most Americans, 90 percent of Americans live within five miles of a pharmacy. If you don't have the primary care physician in enough of them to manage people with diabetes, manage people with high blood pressure, those are things that can be moved to the pharmacist level. I mean, most of this stuff is on protocol anyway. Mm -hmm. So these are things we can do. But it, it requires, though, that the system be opened up because everything previously and, you know, we even saw this with Social Security, every one else who's done the provider status had to be added in because when they started, it was just physician. You know, the CPNs had to be added in, the PAs had to be added in, and now we're the ones asking to be added in. And at no point, and I I love the AMA and I appreciate their lobbyists doing the job that they're supposed to do and fight (laughs) back on this, show me where the others have gone astray. If we've been able to add midwives to the system and it isn't causing any problems, Someone with a PharmD degree is probably as qualified, if not more, <laughs> especially, you know, OK, there's birthing babies and then there's managing diabetes, yeah. here, you know. Uh, but, you know, when we start to think, too, about public health more generally and COVID has really been the main one. But we look at all kinds of other things that are moving, you know, whether it's ensuring we're biodefense and we're protected against anthrax or something like that. Is it STI testing and ensuring that, you know, people have access and, you know, aren't losing, you know, aren't getting into problems because they have an STD? You know, how are we fitting pharmacists into the broader healthcare system as well? And I think, you know, us in long term care have a great case study to say and to really show that pharmacists are doing this work with the most complex patients, their colleagues in the community setting can do this stuff as well for the less complex ambulatory patients and really provide that care. You know, we've got the nursing shortage and in the community, you've got the primary care shortage. And that's why I think that our our, um, long-term care pharmacy services at home and the alliance that we've put together to promote that is one of the most exciting things for me personally, after being a pharmacist for many, many decades, having the opportunity to provide these services for patients in their home is just amazing. I mean, people are doing it now to a certain degree, but they're not really getting paid for it. So we need to find that mechanism for getting them paid and expand that service because of the shortages in primary care. Medication management is something we really do well. And it's something that we should promote because packaging, yes, that's important, but lots of people can do packaging. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do packaging and, and send it and somebody could be on the phone and, you know, handle your questions. But actually managing their medications, making sure they're on the right medications, make sure they're taking them appropriately, that they're not experiencing adverse reactions. That's something that a pharmacist does well, because that's what we do every day. We do it for for uh, residents of facilities. We do it for assisted living facilities. Why not be able to do it for well, patients it comes, at home? It comes back to the magic word relationship. Yeah. Right. Like, do you want to? 
talk to somebody on the phone from a mail. I should pick on mail order pharmacies, <laughs> but from a mail order pharmacy that you just get the random person that answers the phone if you have a question, or do you want to talk to somebody that you go to routinely and you have a rapport with, and they know who you are and what you did for a living and your family, and therefore can craft their message so that it resonates more with you. Yeah. So in, in getting sort of support for the Alliance for the at-home effort, we talked to a lot of different organizations and I spent a lot of time talking to caregiver organizations and they were like, yeah, we love this idea of you guys talking about delivery, but that's the chance that our members get to talk to their pharmacists about their mom's meds. And we're like, oh, no, no, that's still going to be part of this. We actually want to expand it. And once we started talking to caregivers about the access to a pharmacist, the benefits of packaging. And then we start talking about the medication management services that are available to people in a long-term care facility by CMS mandate that someone in the community doesn't have access to. And I think, you know, going all the way back to Bill Cash, you know, his innovation is still not really available in the community. Right. You know, you're still sitting there putting mom's pills in the container. Why aren't we using this bingo card in the community? And I, I think one of the statistics we found as we were putting this together is only 5% of home health agencies work with a pharmacist. They have no incentive to do it, but these are all of these services, all of these tools, all of these innovations are really sort of facility focused and they're not available to people in the community. And that, you know, that was really the genesis of this conversation about this alliance too was how do we take the benefits of long-term care pharmacy that people in a facility get and expand those to every senior in the community or everyone who has an ADL in the community that may not be a senior. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we're the geriatric experts right. and we already are doing this every day. We're living and breathing this. We had multi-dose pouch or multi-dose bingo for the last 15 years yeah, and the right. community's just seeing this for the first time. And yeah. so you know, I think it's a disservice to these patients, and most of them are Medicaid patients, mm -hmm. to not have access to, to long-term care pharmacies. Yeah. And then look at a PACE program. I've never met a single person who hates their PACE program. Everybody loves it. The problem is they're geographically specific. So mm -hmm. un if, unless you're lucky enough to in live county. in a place mm -hmm. that has one, you're kind of, you know, you, you don't have access. And you know that was a way to get these sort of things out into the community, but it's still very geographic and they tend to be in more urban areas. Mm -hmm. It tends not to be available to the people in more rural communities, which then are, have less access to the home care, probably have higher commute times for family caregivers. Mm -hmm. You know, the people who could really benefit the most from something like that, unfortunately don't live in the areas that are providing that as an access tool. Well, this is awesome. This is exactly what, you know, this episode was about, was trying to figure out how we connect the history to the present, to the future. And that's what we've done. Like we've talked about issues in the context of older issues, present day issues, future issues. Any last comments, Tom, from your side? No, it's great. I, I you know, I just want to appreciate what you guys are doing on, on our behalf. And and I know you probably don't get this a lot. I mean, I'm sure Chad thanks you all the time, but you know, in general, as a as a long time long term care pharmacist, you know, you're out fighting for us every day, and you're fighting for for our pharmacies. You're fighting for our patients, and you know, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. It might go unthanked at times, but it doesn't go unnoticed. And if you don't do what you do, then we can't do what we do. And so, just just thank you for myself and other pharmacists. Well, thank you yeah, for that. Thank you. But I mean, it's it's an easy story to tell. Like what ASCP members do 
every day in the community, every day for their patients. The second we start talking about what you do, everyone is on board. Everyone's an ally. Everyone's a supporter because what you do matters. What ASCP members do every day matter. They're taking care of people who otherwise wouldn't have been taken care of at the same level. They're improving their quality of life. And that's a great story to go up to the hill and, and tell because it needs to be told and we just need to continue to tell that story more. But you know, no one ever slams the door in our face because <laughs> what ASCP members are doing does impact people's lives and makes them better. Absolutely. And, and I think the work that our members do is just incredible. People are so, I've always said that about this segment of healthcare. They're very entrepreneurial. They, so they're always figuring out ways of, of providing better service to patients. And what we're seeing now is an evolution of that. I mean, we started out with packaging and, and working in nursing homes and, and consulting was very much just, hey, how's it going? What can I help you with? And that developed into consulting services and where we are today and moving out into the community, I think it's a natural evolution of, of what we're doing. So it's great to see that it keeps progressing and uh, it's because of our members because they're doing the work. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, certainly maybe the message we should send at the end is get involved, be involved, be connected. Absolutely. Your stories matter. I think Arnie did a great job of explaining why your practices are so important. But those stories of your practices matter, too, and, and linking them to the influential people in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the agencies is, is critical for, for all of us. And, and that's why supporting ASCP, you know, if, if you're a member, thank you. And now recruit other members. <laughs> Go out and, and not pharmacies, pharmacists. All your pharmacists should be members of ASCP because they're fighting for us and they're fighting to to make a better future for us and, and for the next generation. So membership's important. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.